0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us.
1: I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of baptism, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast. You know, sometimes when it comes to the subject of baptism, I can't help but think about the disciples and wonder what they might have been thinking when they were being baptized by John the Baptist. You know, when John the Baptist said that he was baptizing so that he could identify the Messiah, that was a little bit more than just baptizing people for the purpose of calling them to repentance. And I just can't help but wonder if some of the disciples were being baptized and if they were concerned or if they were not concerned or what they might have thought concerning John's message that he was also looking for the Messiah. I mean, could you imagine if you were there... And you were there to be baptized by John as he was calling people to be baptized, to repent from their sins, and to turn back to the living God? Could you imagine what it would be like being baptized personally by John the Baptist, wondering if you were going to come up out of that water and he was going to announce that you were the Messiah? I mean, what kind of experience would that be, wondering if you are going to be declared to be the Messiah. I personally, I would consider that to be a great risk, and I would probably step aside from the offer to be baptized only because I would be concerned as to whether or not I would actually be declared to be the Messiah, because that would hold a great deal of responsibility associated with it, that's for sure. Sometimes I wonder about things like that. But when the disciples were baptized, what did that really mean? What did that mean to them? Well, as I explained in previous programs, what that meant to them was that they were recommitting their lives to Judaism. They were recommitting their lives to the law of Moses, to the Judaism that was defined by the law of Moses. That's what they were committing themselves to, that they were going to live a life of repentance of their sins, repentance from their sins, and they would live a life of obedience to their God. This was a new experience for Jews. Before this time, it was reserved only for the Gentiles. And so this was a new movement. It was a new phenomenon. It was a major paradigm shift, especially because the Pharisees had been teaching that if you were born Jewish, you would have a place in the kingdom to come, regardless of the presence of your sin or its absence. Because you were a child of Abraham, you would have a place in the kingdom of heaven. That's what they were teaching. And so to suggest that you needed to be converted in a similar way that the Gentiles were converted was directly opposed to that Pharisaical belief. It was directly opposed to that. And so a great controversy began because of that. Pharisees came out from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist who did he think he was. And I, of course, addressed this in previous programs. Now, after Jesus was identified, after he was identified... His disciples continued to baptize. He apparently endorsed the baptisms. He certainly didn't speak against them, as far as we know. In John chapter 4, there is a reference to this. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, in verse 2 it says, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And then, of course, we have the story of the woman at the well. But in verse 2, it says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, regardless of whether his disciples were baptizing or Jesus was baptizing, what would that now mean after Jesus has been identified as the Messiah? John was continuing to baptize people, we know that. And so if John the Baptist was continuing to baptize people after Jesus was identified as the Messiah, John claimed that that was the reason why he was baptizing people, so that he could identify the Messiah, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. If that's why he was baptizing, then why would he continue to baptize after Jesus was identified? And why would the disciples continue to baptize people after he was identified. I believe that the reason why people were continually baptized after the Lord Jesus was identified was because the message of the Lord Jesus was a message of repentance. The message of the Lord Jesus was a message of obedience. He was calling people to return to the Mosaic law and to live a life of obedience To the Mosaic Law, if you go through his ministry and you study very carefully the things that he taught, especially what he taught publicly, he taught the Old Covenant. And that, of course, would make perfect sense because the New Covenant did not go into effect until after he died. So I would certainly be very concerned if he was not teaching the Old Covenant while he was conducting his ministry because the Old Covenant was the covenant that was in effect. Now, technically, the Old Covenant is still in effect, and I use it quite often. When people need to be notified or informed that they are not holy, that they are not righteous, that they are not being obedient to God, that they are not being fully repentant, when people need to be informed about their inadequacy, when they need to be informed that they have no hope outside of the mercy of God, I'll use the Old Covenant for that. Or when people want to live in obedience to the Mosaic Law, I teach people To do that. I do. I'm not afraid of that. I tell people if you want to do that, then do it. Don't mess around with it. Don't play any games. And don't try to get somebody else to do it. You do it. And do it right. And be committed. And be sincere. Why would I say something like that? Because I sincerely believe that eventually they will be so beaten, they will be so pummeled, that eventually they will reach out to the living God in total absolute despair reaching out to Him and begging for His forgiveness and for His mercy. Then they can be saved. So the law certainly can be used today. The Old Covenant is perfectly functional today. We can use it to condemn people all the time. It's a very good thing to use, especially for those who want to be sincere and committed, who believe that they can actually accomplish that. But again, the message of the Lord Jesus was a message of calling people to repentance and obedience. According to the Mosaic law. And so it would make perfect sense for him to continue the message that baptism provided. And that was the message that the Jews were just as sinful, they were just as unclean as the Gentiles. That just because you were born as a child of Abraham did not automatically mean that you would have a place in the kingdom of heaven. So that is why I believe John continued to baptize and the disciples continued to baptize, because that would be consistent with the ministry of Jesus, with Jesus' ministry. It would be consistent because Jesus was calling people to live a life of obedience to the Mosaic Law. Now, of course, this is impossible, as was described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, be perfect as God or you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that sound encouraging to you? I did a series on the subject of the Sermon on the Mount. I would like to encourage you to listen to those programs, contact me for the audio CDs, or download those files for free off of the internet at my radio archive found at livinggodministries.net. By all means, listen to the programs that I did on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did a great job calling people back to the law. And so, To say that people are being baptized is to say that this is consistent, that this is the appropriate thing for people to continue to do. For how long? They should continue to do this, I would expect people would continue to do this until the new covenant goes into effect. When the new covenant went into effect, then all sin was paid for, all sin was resolved, And because the sin issue came to an end, the issue of the law came to an end as well. Because when there is no penalty, there is no law. So he set us free from the law so that we can, what, go out and indulge the flesh? Of course not. No, he set us free from the law so that we can be loved by our God. We can be accepted by our God. Not because of what we do or we don't do, but because of what he did on our behalf. And the newness of life is living, then, on the basis of what he gives to you, not on the basis of what you hope you're going to get from him through your repentance, obedience, or observance. It's a very important transition that a person has to go through if they are going to live according to the new covenant, if they are going to experience the new life that our God has provided for us. Otherwise, you won't experience it at all. Now, there's another reference in the scriptures concerning baptism that I'd like to address while I'm just tying off a few loose ends before I get into the Great Commission and get into the book of Acts. In Mark chapter 10, there is a reference to baptism that's quite unique that I do believe you can understand now if you've heard all the previous programs that I've done on the subject of baptism. If you have not heard the programs that I have done, I've done seven programs before this one. This is the eighth program, and so if you've not heard the entire series, you really need to hear the entire series. You need to hear all the previous programs before you can really appreciate this one. If you haven't, then just bear with me and try to glean the most you can from what I'm about to say. Now, in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, it says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a very interesting question, isn't it? How are you going to respond to that? Are you going to say yes? Are you going to say no? I mean, if you say no, then that might sound a little rude. That might sound as if you're not going to do anything that somebody asks of you. And yet, if you say yes, they might ask you to do something that You definitely don't want to do, or maybe you can't do, and then what are you going to do? You already agreed. That's what I would call a loaded question. In verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, he didn't say yes or no, he just asked them, all right, what is it? I love the way that he asks that question. In verse 37, but they said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, there's actually two parts to that response. The first thing is, is that they have no idea what they're asking for. The second part of this response is an indirect answer to their question. However, it is not a complete answer That's important to see so first of all I'm going to deal with the first part and that is that they had no idea what they were asking for now my initial thought when I first saw this was that they were asking to be on his right and on his left now who's on his left I mean if he's sitting at the right hand of God then who's on his left that's the Living God that's the Heavenly Father so one of them wants to take the place of the Heavenly Father and for him to sit on the right side of the Heavenly Father That is an expression to say that he sits, or that he holds, the power of the one who has the authority on the left. In other words, for Jesus to be on the right hand of God, the right hand was the hand that was normally used to wield a sword. Even if you were left-handed, it could be very risky to go into battle fighting with your left hand. Fighting with your right hand can give you some distinct advantages if your opponent is right-handed, but that's another subject. To be on the right hand would say that you have the executive power. The authority is given to you to execute the laws that were given by the one who is on the left, by the Heavenly Father. And so for them to ask to be on his right hand would be to say that I want to have all of the authority to execute whatever you command. Whatever you say, whatever your laws are, I want to have the executive authority to execute all of those laws or execute people who violate them, one or the other. The idea, though, is that they are asking for something that he cannot give them, That is not his authority to give them those positions. He goes on and he says in verse 40, "...but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared." In other words, it's either the Heavenly Father somebody else. We, We don't know because he didn't give us any more insights concerning this. We're going to have to wait and find out, I believe. Instead, what I'd like to focus on right now is the notion of baptism because he says in verse 30 that, "...you do not know what you are asking, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized." In verse 39, they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now, that's a very interesting statement. First of all, the cup that he is referring to, I believe he explains later, which is to say that they are going to die in a similar way that he is going to die. They're going to die as a result of persecution, something to that effect. But the thing that's really interesting here is that he says that they are going to be baptized with the same baptism that he was baptized with. Now, just a minute. Now, they had been baptized, weren't they? I assume they were. They must have been. They were baptized either by John himself or one of his disciples, or maybe Jesus did it. We don't have that much information to go on. They could be baptized any time. If they have not been baptized in water yet, they can go do it this afternoon, the afternoon that they're having this conversation, that is. They could just go do that. What kind of a baptism could he be talking about? He couldn't be talking about water baptism. I don't think so, because if he was talking about water baptism, chances are that they had already experienced that baptism. No, no, he's talking about a different baptism. What was the baptism that he experienced that was different from everyone else? Well, when he was baptized in water, the Holy Spirit... ...descended upon him like a dove. I explained this in a previous program... ...and the implications of what that explanation meant... ...when John the Baptist used that description. The Holy Spirit descended upon the Lord Jesus... ...and through that, Jesus was baptized with a unique baptism. That was a baptism done by the Heavenly Father... ...by the living God on his Son, the Lord Jesus, who of course was God manifested in the flesh who dwelt among us. But the point is, is that he experienced a unique baptism that only God would do. This is not the kind of baptism that you can do without him. He has to be the one to decide when or if he's going to do that. And I believe that Jesus is saying right here that the disciples had not yet experienced that, but that they would experience it. When did they experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit descended upon the people and indwelt the people, dwelled within the people. That was the restoration of the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam and Eve. The Holy Spirit was restored to those who were willing to receive the free gift of the life of God, and this life is an eternal life because there is no sin left unforgiven that will ever cause that life to depart from within them. And so just as the Holy Spirit baptized the Lord Jesus, so also the Holy Spirit baptized, or the Heavenly Father baptized Jesus. Either way, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in the same way, or in a similar way, as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. In effect, they received the same baptism. And we today receive a similar baptism, if not the same baptism Now, you may wonder, why is it that we are not like Jesus? Why is it that we're not raising the dead and causing the blind to see and healing the lepers with the power of our words or with the touch of our hands? Why is it that we're not doing that? Well, because we are people. We are people who God created and God is God and his spirit indwells within us. He is within us and he's the one who gets to decide these things. You haven't been given some high voltage battery as though that is the power of the Holy Spirit that you can just plug in to whatever you would like and get some kind of reaction. That's not what salvation is. That's not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person. It is the person of our God who dwells within us, who guides us and leads us and participates in the world that we are participating in. And so I wanted to talk about this a little bit because a lot of people have been asking me questions about this unique baptism that he is referring to and what would happen when the disciples were baptized with the same baptism that he was baptized with. Well, we also are baptized with the same baptism, but again, the miracles of God are still the miracles of God. And the fruit of the Spirit is still the fruit of the Spirit. There is no way that we can make decisions concerning What our God can or will do. He is an independent person who makes these kinds of decisions on his own. Now when we continue to go through the scriptures, we see another very important reference to baptism. And that's found in what's referred to as the Great Commission. And this is a very important reference because Jesus told his disciples to go out into the world and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a very important reference. And people often refer to this reference when talking about the subject of baptism, because if Jesus said that we are to do that, then we should do that, and that should be adequate. And I can appreciate that. I can understand that. I understand where people are coming from when they refer to this verse. It makes perfect sense. Now, this is a big subject, and there's no way that I'm going to be able to complete a presentation on the Great Commission In the next few minutes, I'm not going to be able to do that. All I can do is make some references to it and introduce the subject. But in the next program, I will definitely talk about the subject of the Great Commission with reference to baptism, the importance of it, and how that might be applied in what's referred to as the Great Commission. Instead, what I'd like to take a few minutes talking about is the baptism that the disciples experienced. I would like to talk about their baptism for just a minute because they were baptized by John. They were baptized by John the Baptist or by one of his disciples. They had already experienced baptism in water. They had already experienced a baptism and it was a baptism of repentance that they had repented. They had turned away from their sins and they were turning to a life of obedience to the Mosaic law, but a life of obedience nonetheless. And so, if they had already committed themselves, if they had already dedicated themselves in this manner, then would they have been rebaptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus mentioned? This is a very important question to ask, and we have no evidence to suggest that they were. And yet, Jesus said that they should go out into the world baptizing people in that name, Later, people were baptized in the name of Jesus, as was described in the book of Acts. And so were the disciples first baptized by John for repentance, and then baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? And then later on, they heard about people being baptized in the name of Jesus, and so were they baptized a third time to be baptized in the name of Jesus? I know some of you can probably relate to this. You've probably been baptized three or four times yourself, Right. I've heard from a lot of people telling me that they've been baptized over and over and over. Every time they go to a new church, they get re-baptized. And people are asking me questions like, when is it ever going to stick? Or when are Christians ever going to accept the fact that we've already been baptized? Multiple times, over and over and over. It's an important question, and I can look at the scriptures and suggest that perhaps the disciples were baptized three times themselves. And then a fourth, being baptized by the Holy Spirit on top of that. So what could that have meant to the disciples when they heard the Lord Jesus saying to them, Baptize people in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Would not the people who they would baptize question them about that and ask them, Well, now, were you baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And they could potentially say, no, no, Jesus told us to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but not me. He didn't say that. Now, see, we walked and talked with him for three years. Yeah, right. Walking and talking with Jesus doesn't make you God manifested in the flesh any more than hanging out in a chicken coop would make you a chicken. You don't become a Christian by hanging out with Christians. You become a Christian by being resurrected by the living God. That's how that happens. But these are the kinds of questions that people could be asking each other. And yet, as far as I can tell, I don't see any indication, I personally don't see any indication that the disciples were re-baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I don't see any indication that any of the people were complaining to the disciples about not being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe they were, but again, that would be a second baptism. And I'm going to ask the question, what about the first Wasn't the one that they experienced with John adequate? I mean, these are the kinds of issues that start to evolve. These are the kinds of speculations that people end up consuming their days with. And I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to simply raise the issue and leave it there and tell you that I'm going to address the issue in a totally different way. And that is to translate the word baptize. Believe it or not, that word has not been translated. It has not been effectively translated. Let me give you an example. What would happen if I said to you that when God created the heavens and the earth, he merachefet the face of the earth? Now, I just used a word that I described earlier with reference to John the Baptist when talking about the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. I used the word merachefet in order to describe that. That was the word that John would have referred to It's the word that describes the passive intensity of the living God passing over the face of the waters. But without me giving you the definition of that word, you should naturally ask me, Aaron, what are you talking about? What did you just say? You threw in a Hebrew word without translating it, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Would you please translate that word? Well, the same thing applies to the word baptize, baptism, baptized, that word has not been translated. Instead, it has been transliterated. That's something very different. To transliterate a word means that you are able to pronounce that word in a different language than the language that it was originally used for. Baptize is a transliteration of a Greek word, baptismo and other derivations from that. It is a transliteration. It has not officially been translated. And this is very important to the religious community, and I'll tell you why. The reason why people have failed to translate it, and why they continue to fail to translate this word as additional translations come out over time, the reason why nobody's willing to translate this word is because you can use the word to describe a religious activity. That's why. Because if you were to actually translate that word by translating it, you could take away an opportunity to perform religious activity. That's why. The word means immerse. That's what it means. And you may think that that's not such a big deal, but it really is. It really is a big deal. To translate that word as immerse, which is the proper translation, and to understand how that word was used in the Greek culture will change the way that you understand passages like this. This is very important, and the result of this is going to be a completely different understanding of various passages in the scriptures, because the religious reference to a procedure is the bias that people are holding on to. But when you translate that word, it's not always there. The religious procedure is not always there in every reference that uses this word. There is a different meaning that can be identified through the use of this word, and this is exposed in the Great Commission. And I will explain this in more detail in the next broadcast.
0: You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.